Hi, Titans, and welcome back to another episode of the CSUF Podcast, a show where we chat about creating success in all areas, including personal development, career, education, and of course, all things CSUF. As always, I'm your host, Mirabelle Isaias. Have you ever had the terrifying feeling that you have to hide who you are to be safe, or that you have to conceal the most beautiful parts of yourself in order for others to accept you? What if I told you that there are places and spaces and communities where those fears can be erased and you're able to be your most authentic self? For people who identify with the LGBTQ community, these places and communities are a necessary part of creating happy, healthy environments. However, if you don't identify as LGBTQ+, I'll ask you another question. What have you done lately to become and learn how to be an ally for those communities? This week on the CSUF podcast, CSUF assistant professor in the Department of American Studies, Eric Gonzaba, and I are deep diving into his research on mapping the gay guides, as well as asking questions on how to respect and navigate LGBTQ safe spaces, education on allyship, and tips on how you can stay safe during your nightlife journey. So without further ado, let's get into this convo. Take it away, Professor Gonzaba. Welcome to the CSUF Podcast, Professor. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing better now that I can talk to all of you all. Fantastic. Are you ready to get into our questions? Sure, let's do it. Let's do it. So what are LGBTQ safe spaces and why are they necessary? Sure. So I think when your audience hears about safe spaces, they think about, they probably think about like those yellow, like triangle signs they see where all over campus or maybe all over the city, wherever they live. And they tend to be places where LGBTQ people, but other people of, you know, marginalized groups racially or sexually feel like they're not going to be discriminated against if they're at that space. And that's kind of a formal side of space spaces, but safe spaces have been around in American life for decades. They may have been termed safe spaces, but they've often been physical spaces, sometimes even mental spaces, where marginalized people feel like they can be more open and can physically be safer in these kinds of spaces. And so for my work, I study LGBTQ Americans, lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, transgender, and queer and questioning Americans. You know, safe spaces for a long time, for the last, you know, 67 years, have been physical spaces that queer people can go to away from straight eyes and straight scrutiny, that they can feel like they can be more open about who they love and who they want to make love with. Being away from the threats of violence, being able to speak about topics that are long taboo in quote unquote mainstream culture. So I think safe spaces are super necessary because they allow people to feel like they're not so marginalized, even though they're living in a world that they feel like was not created for them. And so that's why they're important to not only uh, recognize and find if you're a part of marginalized community, but also learn about. And that's why we, we learn about them here at Cal State Fullerton. Speaking of Cal State Fullerton, mm-hmm. what are some spaces at CSUF you would consider safe spaces? You know, there are so many campus groups that are looking out for marginalized communities that I encourage people who are listening to this to, to actively be involved in. You know, the resource centers on campus are incredible spaces to foster community, but also institutions like the library are doing really, really incredible work in trying to not only highlight marginalized voices in their own collections, but trying to get students from all different types of backgrounds on the university or all types of students to get involved into campus life and to make sure they feel like they're an active part of the Titan community. Why is it important for people who do not identify with LGBTQ culture to learn and become familiar with LGBTQ history? No, that's a great question. You know, why do we learn about other cultures? And especially why is it important for, you know, non-LGBTQ people to, to, you know, learn about LGBTQ history? You know, partly 
the reason why we learn about other cultures, not just, you know, queer history, or, but all different types of history and culture is because we become better citizens and better humans by understanding different people's cultures. We can't understand how to solve the world's problems or not even the world's problems, our local problems without understanding why people live the lives that they live. And we learn about these different types of communities so we can better confront the challenges that we have to confront in our present. It makes us want to continue waking up every morning because we have the really exciting opportunity to talk to people with different ideas. So for LGBTQ history, for many, many generations, most people thought queer history didn't exist, much less should not be discussed openly. And so it hasn't been really, not since the 1970s and 1980s, has LGBTQ history really finally gotten its due. And by learning about LGBTQ history, we can learn that queer people have not just been stuck in the closet for the last 100 or 200 years, that you know queer life and queer culture has been robust everywhere, not just in the Castro in San Francisco, not just in downtown LA, not just where Stonewall is in New York City. Queer culture is everywhere. And so it's recognizing the unique kind of people who make up our local and national histories. And that's why we learn queer history. It, all it made me think of is that learning about queer history is really going to help with empathy. Mm, totally. That I mean, true? I think that's totally true. You know, we should be able to learn how to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And I know that's a very cliche thing to say. I mean, everyone who's listening to this who has professors, they always say, that's what we do, what we do, we put ourselves in other people's shoes. But by doing that, I know that's a cliche thing to say, but by doing that, we enhance how we understand the broader world. Very quickly, I don't know if, how many of your listeners or have actually, you know, travel a lot or whatnot, but you'll learn if you leave Orange County, right, you're going to confront people who think very differently than you, right? Not divided on lines that you think, not just because their race is different or their sexuality is different or their religion is different, but because of where they grew up. And so even though it sounds like a cliche diversity statement, put yourself in other people's shoes, without doing that, we can't really function as a, as a functional society, as a multicultural republic that we are. I wanted to go back to the point where you said that there's a misconception that queer history has basically been erased or has been ignored. Yes, thank you. How queer history has been ignored. Right. How can somebody who doesn't identify as queer use your research to learn more? You know, it's important to learn about LGBTQ history because, you know, queer people exist. And so those stories are just as valid. And that sounds obvious, right? But I'll make it personally. You know, I grew up in Southern Indiana, rural Southern Indiana, and I thought I probably was the only gay person in my entire county, right? Because there was there wasn't physical gay spaces, and so I felt like, you know, growing up, that once I figured out I was gay, I, I was excited to go to these major places in, you know, Indianapolis or Louisville, where I, these cities that I live near, or New York and San Francisco, to finally be be swallowed into this like, gay cultural world. What, I, what I've re realized with my research of late, you know, one of the projects I lead is called Mapping the Gay Guides, which is taking these historical gay travel guides. These are these were books that were being published in the 60s and 70s and 80s that would list addresses where gay people could go in every state in the country. So if you were visiting Alabama, for instance, it would list the gay safe spaces that you could visit in Birmingham and in Tuscaloosa and in Mobile, similar to Indiana. In, and what I learned by doing this research was that like, even though I felt so isolated, it was because I didn't have access access to understand that queer culture, yes, existed in major cities, but it also existed not just in the present, it existed in the past, and it existed in every part of the United States. It wasn't just in the major cities, it was also in the small towns. And, and queer spaces look differently in, in smaller towns and smaller cities than they do in the San Francisco's of the world or in the New York cities of the world. And so one of the reasons why we do queer history and we should recognize is because it, it allows queer people in the present to see that they have been always a hugely influential and incredibly significant part of American life in American culture.
I love the way that you talked about reminding people of the huge impact that LGBTQ people have in our past and how fascinating that is. How can more students become educated and become allies for the LGBT community and respect their safe spaces? Sure. You know, that's a fabulous question. One I, I want to hear everyone to answer. You know, and sometimes this is the easiest time to try to become an ally and become educated in LGBTQ issues, both cultural issues and historical issues, because you have the world literally at your fingertips. Pendulum of human knowledge is on the internet. So you can, you can go on Netflix and find incredible documentaries about LGBTQ history and LGBTQ culture, incredible books now that are topping the bestseller charts about trans issues and bisexual issues, about novels about the lesbian experience, right? One of the things I recommend people to do is to is get out of your comfort zone and trying to visit places that you may not have thought about is an important place to visit. You know, look up LGBTQ historic sites or if there's an art exhibit by a queer artist going to learn about, you know, this slice of queer culture. Always cognizant though, and this is my big perspective, not a piece of advice, but a, a piece of perspective, always cognizant that whatever slice of LGBT cultural lesson you're learning is never going to encompass the entire LGBT cultural knowledge. So even though you see a documentary on the Stonewall riots in 1969, know that you're only seeing a very small slice of queer history, right? And, and how New York gays and lesbians and trans people and bisexuals dealt with that issue is just one slice about how queer people have navigated and tried to survive in this topsy-turvy world. But yes, immerse yourself in this culture and allow yourself to be uncomfortable. You know, the word queer, we often use that word to mean you know, people who are LGBTQ. But a lot of scholars talk about, we can use that word in many different types of contexts. In fact, when I first started using the word in my own studies, my father would call me and be like, are you allowed to use that word? Because his generation, that was the slur, right? To call someone a queer was like the worst of all insults, which tells you a lot about homophobia. But that word, like similar, like similar words in other different cultures, right? That word has been reclaimed by queer people to mean a lot of things. But one of the things the word has been used as more of a verb than a noun, right? Instead of queer people, it's been used as, an, as a word to describe the function of queering something, right? And the idea of queering your syllabi, looking for the most marginalized voices to talk about. And so I encourage people to queer up their lives. I don't, that does not mean like changing up your dress necessarily or changing the way you talk, right? The queering how we think about the world, the assumptions that you make about your life, always the assumptions that you should always have, right? I think the one thing that queer studies and queer history has done has made us think about ways to destabilize things we've taken for granted. All types of issues, I don't want to go into specifics here, but all types of issues about how we can rethink that and make our world a better place than the world that we were left with. I love that. What you said, queering up our lives. Yeah. <laughs> That's so Why cool. not? Like changing that mindset to kind of totally. put yourself in another person's shoes as what we were 100%. saying before. Love it. 100%. All about empathy here. All about it. <laughs> All about it. All about it. So switching to your classes and your research on nightlife, I was wondering if you had any advice on how LGBTQ people can stay safe during their nightlife journey. Sure. And thank you so much for plugging my new course. When I got to Cal State Fullerton, one of, the, uh, one of the things I was most excited about was creating a new course here on campus called American Nightlife. It's an American Studies 400 level class. And we really go kind of historically look at the way nightlife has developed in the United States since the colonial period all the way to the present nightlife that are more suited for night and the bringing it up. But for your question about, you know, how can LGBTQ people or just people in general, you know, stay safe during their nightlife journey? I think one thing is that, you know, let's queer up that question a little bit, right? So my, my perspective, not my advice about people looking to stay safe, you know, it's the common things, which is people that at night tend to be safer when they're in groups of people, at least with another person, right? So being in a community, which I think alludes itself to marginalized people in general, right? Marginalized people have been better not just, you know, physical safety, but emotional safety when they know that they're not alone. And I could only imagine, right. I've heard so many stories from my friends about how their nightlife journey can be frightening, but it's also right. a place of community. And if you find like a ballroom culture, correct? 
Like that's usually mm -hmm. things that happen at night. So right. it's something that's really beautiful and brings community. The question of safety is interesting because I think you're right. I think these there are different concerns, especially for certain marginalized communities, particularly women at night, the ability of how to navigate, how to be safe here. And so I think my biggest advice would be, you know, find that community. And it is a privilege to have the ability to be solo at night, even for people who prefer to be solo. That's probably a privilege for certain types of individuals over others and a terrible, unfortunate reality that I hope our society can find ways to mitigate Definitely. the, the safety so concerns. Much. Of course. Thank you so much for navigating that question with me. I think yeah. that that's going to be really helpful for viewers just to know that they're not alone. Right. And I, I have one more thing, if you don't mind to add. Go for it, um, please. You know, this question of safety is really interesting, too, because historically it has been, at least in terms of nightlife studies, this is one of the most important issues for communities who have tried to make the night safer, was to try to figure out how to police the night. And sometimes that requires in bringing physical policemen. But I'll give you one example. In the 1970s in, in Washington, D.C., lesbians found a community and some of them found a community at going to lesbian bars in the southeast quadrant of the cities. And one of the reasons why these bars had difficulty taking off and, and staying open was because many women, including lesbian women, felt afraid going out at night because they were being harassed on the street. And this is a kind of culture that forbade many lesbians from wanting to have to go to physical spots in you know, the southeast part of the city. And yet being, op being open about these experiences, not keeping these experiences into themselves, you know, having a community where they're able to voice these concerns, lesbians decide to police their own community themselves. They didn't trust police officers, similar to the distrust of police officers that some communities have today. And so one of the things they created was a system that is in many places now in different parts of the country, but lesbians in DC, this was a system that they, they felt like they created themselves, was a, a buddy system where bars would hire women, particularly women, but also men, to stand outside of certain lesbian bars and walk patrons from the parking lot to the door and back and back and forth and made sure that they got in their car, they locked their doors and were able to leave the parking lot safe. It shows you here the power of community to address concerns that so many of our world's problems aren't are not solved by just keeping things to yourselves, by solving it alone. It requires collaboration. It requires you to be open about some of the most difficult challenges that anyone's going through. And so that's when I think about safety, I think about whenever someone suffers from horrific violence at the evening, whether it's physical violence or emotional violence or whatever, it is never their fault. The only way we can challenge it as a community is being open about it and finding ways collaboratively to deal with it. Because telling people to dress it a certain way or to mind their drinks is never going to solve these real, real uh, horrific systemic issues. Definitely. I have to agree. And I really do appreciate the history that you put mm -hmm. on that question and the answer because it gives a real life example of how society has changed and that oh. we all need to come together and find a way to be respectful of each mm -hmm. other in all mm -hmm. space. And I think that's why I was so focused on allyship, because mm -hmm. I think the goal is to work together and be in spaces where a safe space doesn't have to be just a safe space. It can be a space. Totally. And I think what I, I love what you mentioned about allyship, you know, we're living in a culture now when I was coming of age, you know, gay rights was one of the social issues of our day. And it feels like it may still be, but it feels less like that. And these are not incredible markers that deal with all members of the queer community, right? But gay marriage has been legal in this country for six years now. Homosexuality has been legal for 
almost 20 years now across every single state. So it seems like gay, gay politics and queer politics is not as a pressing concern, although we see anti-trans bills being passed every year, unfortunately, in so many states around this country. But, you know, I, I think it's really great that you're focusing on allyship because even though we're living in a time period where we think of ourselves as more tolerant of queer people, choosing to be an ally is something that has to be chosen and almost has to be chosen on a daily basis, right? Like allies should feel the need that they constantly need to keep learning about queer people because as much as we think we know everything about queer culture and how to respect queer people's lives, we could always learn more about it and how to respect queer people's lives changes over time. And so it's so great that people like you and your listeners are constantly thinking about ways that they can become better allies because it's not enough to just say you're an ally. It's It takes work and that's labor and it's not easy labor to have to do, right? It's a responsibility, but it's one that it's super great to hear that you're really prioritizing on. So I thank you for that really passionate about it. Of course, like I have people around me who identify as LGBTQ and like I care about them so much and I want to sure. make sure that they're okay and that they're safe. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that our viewers think the same way. I almost sure. wanted to ask you about etiquette and being like, sure. how can I be the most respectful ally possible? <laughs> My perspective on this is going to differ than so many people. And so this, this is Dr. Gonzaga's perspective. Do not say this is the way it must be done. But I know, you know, we're at a university for a reason. We're in university to learn, right? We're in university to try things out, try ideas out. Sometimes we're going to say something that 20 seconds later, we're going to regret saying it, right? We didn't phrase it right, or we had an opinion and we were just trying to test it out. But that's not what we actually believe. It's just our way of talking through major cultural and political issues. So one of the, I'll give you one example of etiquette that comes up all the time. I do a lot of, in my research, I talk to a lot of students and they have different ways of talking about themselves. They call themselves queer and they call themselves lesbians and non-binary. And this is great. These are great terms and they're helpful terms to understand one's own identity and to understand one's communities, right? I do a lot of oral histories in my research. So I'm interviewing lots of people who tend to be a little older in age, right? A little more usually senior citizens in their 60s and 70s and 80s and even in their 90s. They're very, they have they label themselves are very different. Sometimes they'll call themselves gay. Sometimes they don't like to use any term. Sometimes they'll call themselves gays and lesbians. Very few of them were going to call themselves queer because that is a term that was based on traumatic experience that they had in grade school and whatnot. It's just a word that they don't like. They'll often be critical of younger generations, millennials or Generation Z, for using that word. And what happens is you have a lot of infighting among the community itself about what's the term we should use, how many letters should be included. And I think the infighting is a distraction. Sometimes the easiest thing is to just learn how, in some subtle means or even directly to see how individuals want to be described as, right? And individually, if someone uses the word gay versus the word homosexual versus the word queer, maybe that's the term you use, right? Same with pronouns. You know, there's a lot of tension to how to refer to pronouns. You know, should you always use them and whatnot? And these are really highly charged political issues. I'm not trying to tell people what they should or shouldn't do here. But sometimes it might be nice, like if, if you hear someone refer to themselves as they, then going forward, try your best. You know, sometimes we're going to make mistakes, but try your best to use the pronouns of their preference. I know, you know, plenty of trans people that pronouns are not hugely important to them, right? And so it just depends on an individual person. Now, it's easy to say that. It sounds very like, oh, the individuals, you should just learn about people. It's harder to do it when you're meeting. I have 150 students every semester. How do I keep track of people's individual identities and whatnot? It's not easy thing. It's, it's labor for us to learn about different people. It's labor to do social justice, to be better human, to try to understand people. Um, and that's okay. You know, sometimes we're going to make mistakes and that's totally okay. And live with the mess, live with the consequences of the mess, but always trying to be a better ally, always trying to learn from one's mistakes is way better than being fearful to ever engage with that community in the first place.
So I'm going to get into our last question. It has been so amazing to talk to you. And I feel like I learned so much and I'm sure that our viewers <laughs> must have learned so much too. So why are you proud to be a Titan? I'm proud to be a Titan because it values diversity in every facet of life and including the, the diversity of learning, right? It encourages us to not just stick to what we're good at, but encourages students to take classes in all types of fields, even in fields they may not be interested in. And I really encourage your students, like one of the things to be a better Titan is to step outside of your major and take classes that you may have zero interesting. Some of the classes I took in undergrad were classes in marine biology and classes in badminton and classes in, in African architecture, right? Stuff I'm not using in my daily life, but stuff I think about all the time. And I'm a better human being by having that knowledge, by having those kind of skills I, I wouldn't have otherwise. And there are classes I hadn't been taken that would have shocked me, that I would have liked in undergrad. I wouldn't be the person I am today, right? I wouldn't have the friends I would have today because of that. So I really encourage them. I mean, Cal State Fullerton is one of the few universities here in California that really encourage you to take all sorts of incredibly weird and unique classes. Embrace the messy and embrace the weird while you're here. Thank you so much. Would you like to plug any of your social medias? Or I know that you're, I think I saw a tweet about Bagel Bites. So, uh, <laughs> I like Bagel Bites too. I'm a vegan. I but. love, oh, I love Bagel Bites. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I'll plug, I'll say my one plug is take American Studies classes. We are a small department, but we teach a really incredible courses on all types of topics. Classes like monsters, classes like nightlife, classes like early America, classes like uh, nature. You can find anything you like about America that you can learn in American Studies classes. Food is a great class. You can definitely take, you can try different types of food every, every class. So I really encourage you to take as many classes in American studies. That's my one plug. Perfect. It has been such a pleasure talking to you and you so I'm much, so Mabel. grateful to have had you on the podcast. So have a great day and stay safe. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you Goodbye. so much. Thank you so much to Professor Eric Gonzaba for joining me on the CSUF podcast. Becoming an ally for the LGBTQIA community is a responsibility that should be prioritized and discussed. Let's work together to make sure that our LGBTQ safe spaces on and off campus can be places where people of all walks of life can feel special, safe, and empowered. Well, Titans, that's all I have for this week. Stay positive, stay safe, and don't forget to follow at CSUF Official on all social media platforms. You can also find coronavirus updates at coronavirus.fullerton.edu. Once again, I'm your host, Mirabella Isaias, signing off. <laughs>